What's the latest, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the End of Paint Show presented by Ball is Life. Devin Uglin and Ronnie Flores here with you for episode 67. Uh, in this episode, we're going to take a look at ep- um, episode 7 and 8 of The Last Dance. Uh, talk a little bit about the NBA, you know, trying to return to action slowly but surely. And the state of grassroots basketball um, during this coronavirus pandemic and what's changed and kind of our outlook for the future. But Ronnie, first, I want to take a look at ESPN's uh, top 10 list, which was voted on by, uh, I I believe, 74 or something like that of their quote unquote experts. Let's run down the list, Ronnie. I'm going to get your initial thoughts and then we'll we'll take it further and kind of go through our potential top 10 list if we were to create one. So this is ESPN's number one, Michael Jordan. I think everyone's a consensus on that. Two, LeBron James. Three, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Four, Bill Russell. Five, Magic Johnson. Six, Wilt Chamberlain. Seven, Larry Bird. Eight, Tim Duncan. Nine, Kobe Bryant. And 10, Shaquille O'Neal. Ronnie, what do you like about that list? What do you hate about that list? Uh, Yeah, Devin, um, overall, like, besides maybe the 11th guy or the 12th guy, I think those 10 guys are pretty hard to knock. Like, um, necessarily you might not like the order. Somebody might not like the order. But uh, I think those guys, whether it's popularity, whether it's notion that, you know, they played – look at the list. Most of them played for the Celtics or Lakers, um, you know, or they have something in their career that people uh, are going to – Memor, member, you know, be memorable for because I would say before the funny thing is when I was in college or when I was in the age where people started debating, um, like great players a lot, you know, what's happened to Oscar Robinson and all these lists? Mm-hmm. Like, it used to be three or four consistently, even I would say about 10 years ago. So, is it just because of Kobe and LeBron's rise? Like, now Oscar Robinson is like, what happened to him? That's one thing that I noticed. So, it would be like Oscar Robinson and then like maybe Moses Malone I w- or Akeem Olajuwon I would uh, be looking at as like maybe cracking one of those 10 spots. But overall, I think those guys are are, are uh, right. I wouldn't agree or, or like the order. But, I mean, that's, you know, the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Like you said, I think as time goes by and forget the documentary and the last dance right now, it's going to be harder and harder to knock Michael Jordan. Again, I think a lot of that to do has to do with timing. Mm-hmm. came into the league uh when the league was tremendously growing in popularity and just stature in terms of the sports pantheon like you know it's just nba basketball was just huge by the 90s or the mid late 90s compared to where it was even 10 or 15 years earlier so yeah i mean i'm just interested when people are so infatuated by the triple-double, whether it's Russell Westbrook or maybe even Magic Johnson, like, well, okay, then what happened to Oscar Robinson here? Right, he, yeah. he was the first one to average a triple-double during a, an NBA season, right? Yeah, and then he averaged close to a triple-double if you round off numbers like his first five seasons. So I, I just like, what happened to that guy? Most people that are 50 years and older will tell you how great the guy is and will, like, really vouch for him. Uh, so because you're vouching for Bill Russell – yeah, I mean, I think him uh, and Kobe Bryant are the most um, – I don't know if the word talked about is or the ones that are going to be highly debated. Yeah. If ESPN has them number four. Obviously, there's – they show some of those clips of like 
guys shooting free throws and shed shots when Bill Russell plays. So anybody younger than 30 is going to knock that right away. Let's be honest. Nobody under 25, 30 years old has that much. Now they have love for Bill Russell, but I don't think they respect like his game. Whereas you talk to a guy who's maybe in Frank Burleson's age or Jim Jones's age, they're going to look at Russell completely different, you know? So um, I got a lot of respect for him. I wouldn't necessarily have him four. But he can't really be much lower than six or seven. What do you think, Devin? I, okay. I don't think much lower than that. Yeah. To your to your point about Oscar, yeah. I think, and I think it goes for. It doesn't really go for Russell because he's on the list. But to your yeah. point about Oscar Robertson, yeah. most of the guys, I'd assume, yeah. who contributed to these votes or this list, yeah, aren't old enough to yeah. know or see or remember how good or the impact this guy had. Yeah. I'm, I'm obviously not that not old enough for that. I'm not old enough for Bill Russell, yeah. um, or you know, even to truly appreciate Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So, yeah. but I do understand from the standpoint of overall um, basketball uh, importance and dominance throughout you know various levels. For me, MJ won. I think Kareem should be that number two spot. Yeah. Uh, for the dominance he had at the high school, college, and NBA levels. Yeah, he just uh, was consistently dominant. Yeah, I think that three spot, in my opinion, belongs to Magic Johnson uh, yeah. for how he kind of saved the the game, revolutionized the position. Yeah. Point guard position. Um, that four spots up for debate. I think you could, you could plug in um, anyone from LeBron James to Kobe Bryant to Larry Bird because Larry Bird had a similar effect that Magic had. Sure. They came into the, the the league in the the late seventies, early eighties, and and their their rivalry and their you know championship uh, pedigree kind of saved the league. Yeah, um, so. and I think to your point about that is Charles Barkley nailed it really well with um, Charles Barkley nailed it really well with when Kobe Bryant passed. He says, "I don't care what you guys say." Uh, Magic and Bird are the most important players in the league ever. Most important, maybe not the best. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a great life. We, you know, we we order chartered planes and we you know, order bottles of Don Perignon. Like that wasn't the case before those guys came for many players. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Besides David Thompson, Julius Irving, and the highest earners, you know, Rick Barry, NBA players weren't living like that. They okay. didn't have that stature, like I said, in society. So. Uh, you know, when you look at Oscar, to change the subject a little bit, we don't have to spend much time on Magic and Burke because I agree with you. I would have Magic a little higher. And the reason is because, uh, and I'll talk about it in a while, is where I have Kareem. Is, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about Oscar, you're talking about a tremendous athlete. When you look at Jordan and you look at him in his second run, as you see in the last dance, just like how his body looks really ripped and 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 coordinated and everything is on balance. I mean, Oscar Robinson, when essence was so good, it was just almost like almost too good. Not necessarily to believe like he made it so simple and so good. That's just how good he was. Meaning if he could just back down his guard and shoot right over him, there was no, no, uh, you know, it had no theatrics of an Elgin Baylor or Dr. J. He would just back his guy down, shoot a turnaround and boom, two points. So like, and then he's averaging also 10 assists and, and 10 rebounds. So, you know, I, I kind of – I think he got lost in the shuffle. I think he should still be in the 
three to seven range. Because when I was a young kid, I would say he would have been in the top three to four. And now I guess with Jordan, LeBron, others, you know, as time goes by, he's getting knocked. So uh, very interesting there. Um, I, I think Bill Russell deserves what he the accolades he gets. Uh, I would probably have him a little lower just because of the um, you, you look at players and if he's 6'9", 220, and yes, he did a great job defensively. Like basically he's Magic Johnson and, and Dennis Rodman size. So yeah, he had his good games against uh, Will Chamberlain and Will Chamberlain had great games as well. And I just think the Celtics had great teams, you know, and yeah. there being eight teams in the league, is that a knock or a positive? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. teams. The, quality, the quality and depth of, of talent yeah. back then, maybe not near yeah. uh, the current state or even the 80s, 90s. You yeah. know I, mean? I think if you talk to most player people who've been around, uh, the early 60s wasn't what the late 60s was. So I say they just became a lot of talent in the late 60s to early 70s, uh, maybe more integration, um, a bigger pool of players, a bigger pool of players from the West and the Southwest and other areas which really didn't have players. New York, uh, New York and Boston basically dominated the NBA in the 50s and 60s, like where the players came from, where the coaches came from. Doug right. Moe, you know, all those guys, all those old names we hear. So many of them are from New York. So that's where the officials came from. That's where the administrations came from. That's where the coaches came from. So it spread it out. I think it got better. So I'm kind of in that boat with guys who think that the talent got better really good in the late 60s, early 70s. And then there seemed like to be another jump, Devin. Uh, I mentioned this with our guy Pratt Pratt, who's in a – who does announcing, who does officials at a lot of grassroots games in Southern California. He, he, Pat, I know you know him really well. He kind of studies the history of the game a lot. And I tried to tell him, I said, Pat, think about the late seventies and guys that were all NBA. So you had, um, David Thompson, Marcus Johnson, um, even younger players. Uh, the guy I'm thinking of is Phil Ford coming out of North Carolina and a few others. Bill Cartwright's another one who we'll talk about in a little while. Those guys made all NBA, Devin. Young. Bill Cartwright made the NBA All-Star game in 1980. Never made it again. Right. Bill Ford and a few others were all NBA in the late 70s. I think even JoJo White. And then when that early group of the 80s came, um, speaking of, you know, Magic's group and even Isaiah Thomas, Ralph Sampson, those guys were no longer all NBA, and they weren't that old. Right. So it's very interesting. And then you had the 84 draft, which kind of took the NBA to another, you know, it's considered one of the greatest drafts. So all those guys who were all NBA in the late 70s, and you can go look at it, all of them weren't that old. They weren't all NBA by like 83, 84. Why? Because Magic was taking a spot. Bird was taking a spot. Jordan, Ajuan. Those guys started taking the spots right away, and those other guys weren't done. So I think there was another big jump in the early 80s to mid 80s of talent. And I think some of the guys in the late 70s, whether it was, uh, on, to be honest, drugs and other things, kind of made their career shorter. And, the, and these younger guys just kind of took over. So very interesting there. Um, you know, with, my, with that list, uh, you know, like you said, Bird, I would probably have six or five. 
But uh, it's hard to knock Jordan. And, and uh, you know, what do you do with Kobe Bryant? Because he is so relevant to so many younger generation of fans. And, and, and he just, of course, of what transpired in the last three to four months, everybody's going to have him very high on a pedestal. Devin, real quick, I want to get your opinion. What do you think about current NBA players just thinking he's automatically the second or third best player ever? I'm just like, I just don't see it, but I understand it, you know? So I, I think where the Kobe Bryant debate starts is, okay, he's the second closest thing we've ever seen to Michael Jordan in yeah. style of play and yeah. cop- basically a carbon copy of his game, maybe a little bit more uh, inefficient from the field than Jordan yeah. overall, I think. Sure. But he won five titles, right? Yeah. Uh, um, he uh, you know, mimicked Jordan's game as much as possible. So a lot of people look at it like, Okay, if Jordan is the surefire number one player, why would the the carbon copy of Jordan not be the number two player? Because yeah. he did win titles. Like if Kobe Bryant won one or two um, NBA titles, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. But because he won five, uh, that's why that's why he's in that conversation. I like I told you, I think a safe range for him is a uh, is anywhere from four, five, six. Yeah. Seven, in my opinion, I think an argument can be made for other guys in those spots, whether it's Bird, LeBron, uh, yeah. Bill Russell. I mean, dude, I think I, for for me, I think Shaq's way too low. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the dominance. Yeah, I really do. Just from the dominance factor and the 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 yeah. skill and the the mobility and uh, yeah. his back to the basket game and just being you know seven feet, seven feet one, two hundred and you know almost three hundred pounds, yeah. over three hundred pounds at some point in his career to be able to do the things he did and he won a, a lot of titles himself. So uh, if you put, if you put Shaquille O'Neal into the, I hate to do this, but you put Shaquille O'Neal into the late sixties, what's he doing to that competition? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the debate. Most people your age and younger would have. I've seen it a lot on social media. Like, come on. I mean, basically so many guys are like, come on. And now the older guards going to say Bill Russell can hold his own with anybody, but the younger crowd's like, can he really guard Shaq? Yeah. So there's that clip of Shaq just absolutely abusing David Robinson. Yeah. Did you see that? Have you seen that clip yeah. going around? Yeah, recently, yeah. I mean, just drop step, power move, shoulder. David yeah. David Robinson was like one of the most well-built basketball players of all time. Yeah, and 71, 250. Shaq flicked, flicked him off like a flea, right? Yeah. I mean, so you put Shaq into the late 60s, and his, his numbers have got to be like 40 and 30 and like 12 yeah. blocks. I mean yeah. – well, it's very interesting. A couple of points about Wilt Chamberlain that you think I think you might find interesting is uh, Sonny Hill, who's runs the Baker League in in Philadelphia. It's a pro am, and a lot of great players have played in it throughout the history of the game. He was on the McDonald's committee. He still might be on the McDonald's committee. He's obviously getting up there in age, and he said, you know, about Wilt Chamberlain that he's so strong and so good that Earl Strom the all-time NBA referee said, guys, uh, to be honest, uh, if we called the game fair, there would be a foul all the time and there would be no game and the game right. was stopping all the time for Wilt. Like we had to let some fouls go because he's just too big and strong and good. Yep. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at a little bit with Shaq. Uh, there was some of that a little bit in the hack of Shaq days, maybe not as, as, as prominent, but 
like basically Will Chamberlain had a lot of um, injuries that he kind of played through and also a lot of circulation problems because he would just get hammered. And I know he had a problem with, with his jaw lining. He got elbowed and he got um, he got an infection. So he had, he had little issues. Will had little issues related to the pounding and related to his body being so big. And I, I might have contributed to his 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 demise at a young age. But very interesting that Earl Strong would say that. Like guys, if we had a if we ref the game like we ref uh, Bob Cousy and uh, Jerry West, like there would be no game. He'd be fouled every second. So right. very interesting. Compare, no. So Will Will's another interesting one for me because yeah. I think from an impact standpoint and just kind of, again, revolutionizing a position. Yeah. He's on that level in his era with what bird and magic did. And then what LeBron Kobe uh, Shaq did Um, comparing Wilt and Shaq. What, what were the biggest differences was, was Wilt as explosive as Shaq or was he a little bit more methodical? Uh, He might have a little bit more methodical in his movements. Yeah, because she's better than an athlete. So yeah. um, you think about sprinting and track and field, Devin, and think about um, Carl Lewis and, you know, Tim Montgomery and, and even Usain Bolt and those type of guys. The fastest guys in your school, my school, were probably 5'11", 6'6", you know, that's just the normal range of once you get to about 6'4", you're, most Americans are a little uncoordinated. They're a little goofy, little loopy. I don't know. I'm looking for the right word. They're just not coordinated. So when you get – that's why when you see great athletes about 6'6", six, six seven, you're like, wow, look how great an athlete that guy is, right? So for Will Chamberlain to be like a college track and field athlete, to do big eight high jumping, he's the city champion in Philadelphia as a city of 3 million people to win the 100-yard dash at 7-1. Like yeah. he is totally – off the radar, off the charts, athlete. You know what I mean? Super yeah. strong. Even when he retired, people's like, this guy's just so strong, you know? So I think you're like the game was a little more methodical then. You could see kind of highlights of, of the way he, Chamberlain moved with like his feet kind of planted to the basket, waiting, right. waiting for offensive players. I think Shaq is more of a modern version, but like there's nobody that's going to say she, Wilt's not um, in that range of Shaq. Also, because he was also physically fit and, and prime and ready to go almost all the time. Where Shaq sometimes had seasons, especially toward the end, where he didn't look too good. He wasn't <laughs> too good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if 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 Shaq would have would have like, called quits after that Miami title, I think we'd look at him and we'd hold him a little higher of a of a level. Yeah. Uh, but he became a journeyman, out of shape. Yeah. Kind of close to that times. Yeah. yeah. Um, last I, one. It's his 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002 seasons were just like as good as seasons as you're going to see. Um, so, yeah, for me, uh, I mentioned, I think Dr. J, too, you know, I mean, he doesn't maybe have the ball handling and shooting skills, but he's a he's a great player, transcendent player. I think he has to be a little lower, though, because of those things. And again, we saw him mostly with Philly. You know, obviously, if you if you watch that NBA TV documentary, about him and show some of his squires stuff, what he did with the ABA. It was like, this guy is fantastic, you know? Right. Um, very interesting thing about Kareem. You can look at him two ways. Is he, like you said, took care of himself. I think he was one of the first athletes to realize how important stretching was. Uh, you know, I guess this 
uh, non-traditional way of keeping in shape, whether it was an early form of yoga, the things he was doing with like uh, Bruce Lee was just way ahead of people. He kind of, I remember in a Sports Illustrated article, he mentioned, well, I don't tape my ankles too much because uh, if I if I make my ankle too stiff, what's the next joint that's going to give? It, it, which he was referring to his knee. So it made total sense. I mean, just the way he was thinking was like way ahead of most guys. And he obviously lasted 20 years. So I'm with you. I think Magic Johnson is too low, mainly because... I was listening to Doug Moe and some other NBA coaches talking and they mentioned that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a talented player. He got traded to the Lakers. He wasn't very happy with basketball at that time. People even thought he might retire in the late seventies, early eighties. He just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't, uh, he just wasn't coming along as very, um, uh, maybe he was a misunderstood character, you know? Mm -hmm. And it kind of was brought to that light in that movie Airplane where Kareem was played in that comedy Airplane. And the little kid goes, the little kid in that famous movie goes, hey, aren't you Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? My dad says you don't work hard on defense and you don't run back. You don't run back on defense. And and, and Bill Walton, uh, you know, I like Bill Walton. The little kid was just going off. It was a, like a parody. And he goes, hey, kid, how would you like it to get, get elbowed in the in the in the stomach every night go up against Walton and the little kid his eyes are just real big so it was I think it played along to what people thought of 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 Kareem at the time that he was just a moody player gotcha a little selfish wasn't likable not very likable and then when magic hit the scene boom totally changed his outlook changed people's outlook of him there's no way Kareem lasted in 1989 without magic I mean that I think even Kareem has mentioned that Oh yeah, yeah. That has to elevate magic because if you're elevating Kareem, well, what's the reason why he was so dangerous? What's the reason why he had the motivation to stay on and to keep playing at a high level was magic. There's no doubt about it. So I think that that plays a big part into where I would say uh, magic, how he motivated people and, and how he motivated his teammates. So I think, like you said, being him being six, nine point guard, revolutionizing the the position, I think he has to be a little, no lower than three or four. Yeah. Um, you know, because he made other players that dangerous. Look at what happened with Byron Scott and James Worthy when Magic uh, announced his retirement. Their production, they, they were, yeah, they just were not even they relevant. Became, they became, yeah, but they became, became average NBA players, right? Yeah. I think we're on the same page with one, two, and three. Uh, MJ, Kareem, Magic. Yeah. Uh, and then four. Here, here's my thing with, with four. You you go anywhere. And before we move on to the episode seven eight of the Last Dance, I want to get your take on Tim Duncan because he's always just the guy that people slot in. Yeah, because he was really good. I mean, just yeah. straight up, he's the best power forward of all time. I mean, is he a power forward or is he a center? Like, yeah. What are your overall takes on Tim Duncan and where he belongs within this top ten list? I think when he when they lost that series and gave away that series to Miami with Kawhi Leonard missed those free throws and, and Ray Allen hit that corner three and kind of got LeBron his second title, uh, I said, man, you know, this guy's going to have four titles. Uh, you know, he's not going to be appreciated as much. But then when they came back <laughs> the next year and beat Miami, 
214, I believe that was, you know, um, and he got the five titles. Now you're in basically, you can argue he's as good as a dominant uh, figure in his era as Kobe Bryant. So you can't even argue that Kobe Bryant's the, the you know, if he has five titles and was a part of big hand in those, you can't even say convince everybody that he's better than, 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 uh, you know, than, than Tim Duncan. So Kobe Bryant, if, if Kobe Bryant is up there, then I think Tim Duncan has to move up there with him because he's going to be looked at in that pantheon of, of, Hey, wait a minute. He won five titles with on basically on Kobe's watch. I think that's why people will 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 gravitate towards Jordan as number one because of the of the level of players that he kept from winning the title or sure. only one title. Sure. You know? So I think that's where Tim Duncan gets elevated. I'm fine with that. I I like his fundamentals. I like the way he brought to the game. I just thought toward the end of his career, he got it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a backseat to Ginobili. I'm going to take a backseat to, to Kawhi Leonard. Kobe Bryant never got that. He just didn't get it. You know, he just did not get it. He, the Lakers were terrible. I know we love that last game, David, but the Lakers were terrible. <laughs> that, that last game was uh, was some uh, both legendary and terrible stuff at the same time. It was, it was so hard to watch, but you couldn't stop watching it just because yeah. of how – uh, amazing it was to see this dude coming yeah. off the ruptured Achilles, just jacking shots and scoring 60 points in his final game. Um, yeah. These lists are always fun for yeah. debate. Um, and, I, and I think arguments can be made for guys, like you said, like Oscar Robertson to make a top 10 appearance for a guy like Dr. J, you know, because he was one of the guys who came over and helped save the NBA. Yeah. Um, um, who uh, Akeem Olajuwon. I mean, yeah. Akeem Olajuwon, yeah. he's one of the best low-post back-to-the-basket players ever to live yeah. um, with, with his skill set and, you know, what he brought to the table. Even though, unfortunately, nowadays, Ronnie, most, you know, seven-footers or 6'11 or 6'10s yeah. would be Kevin Durant. Uh, yeah. If they could just learn a few, you know, dream shakes and, you know, work on their footwork, you know, maybe we could get the, the true uh, low-post guy back. But um, Yeah, you know, just one – Point and we'll move on to the last yeah. answer. The next thing, you know, I started my drinking career <laughs> oh, <laughs> at the time. Uh, Akeem was making his runs, you know, and honestly, Devin, and we'd argue a lot because it's college time, it's you know, I'm finishing high school, going into college, that type of thing. So, I'm around a younger guys, we're watching a lot of games at that time, obviously, like any other you know, 19, 20 year old, whatnot, dude. Akeem made David Robinson and Patrick Ewing look average. And right. that's I mean, like he really did for a couple of playoff series yeah. after the run he had when Jordan left. So, yeah, kudos to him. Kudos to Moses because Moses got Dr. J that title. Moses pounded Kareem Abdul-Jabbar a few times in the playoffs. I mean, the Sixers were really an underappreciated dynasty. So I'm yeah. with you on those three guys, Oscar, Moses, um, and Akeem Olajuwon. So, uh, Devin, why don't you move us to our next topic and, and what – what we uh, want to focus on when I guess it comes to the last dance. Yeah, your your drinking career started at nineteen twenty. Mine started at about thirteen. So <laughs> that's that's what every good Orange County white person does um, in their in their beginning teen years as they start drinking. But um, I'm, I'm past that now. So I I started early and peaked or peaked early. Um, let's move to the last dance episode seven and eight were uh, last Sunday. Um, the most interesting. So there's 
a couple interesting parts of this for me. We'll start with Jordan going to minor league baseball. They covered all that plenty and, you know, what went behind it, the death of his father, kind yeah. of his, his um, um, losing interest in, in basketball and all the media attention and all the, the negative spins that were happening. So he went and played baseball. Sure. Uh, we don't need to discuss all that stuff because it was already hit on the head. I want to get your take on his baseball skills. Are you impressed that he was able to hit above 200 in double a, which is, you know, relatively high level for prospects for major league prospects after not playing since high school, since 17 years old. Yeah. You know, I'm impressed with him overall as an athlete. Um, I think it's a little bit of revisionist history, Reinsdorf and whoever, like he might've made the, the show and like, yeah, you can't supposed to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are they supposed to say? So I get that, but I think overall, you know, these guys were going to either challenge him with the fastball, the number one, and say, hey, let's see if this guy even has anything, and he he could hit a fastball, you know, it's like he 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 can hit an eighty-five mile per hour pitch, he can hit a ninety-one mile per hour pitch, right? So he was doing okay, you know. Um, for like you said, being in his thirties and and having played the game in twelve or fourteen years or whatever, and then when they start throwing him pitches that he might see if he was taken seriously as a serious guy in the in the lineup, like he, he didn't have much. That was it, you know, like that was his level. So I think overall he did a good job. I just think he wasn't major league caliber. He wasn't major league caliber in the field. No, you know? I mean just yeah. you know it takes a lot of years. That's what it's a failure sport. Um, it's not as easy to pick up and and take off and pick up as basketball. Definitely not because I've I've you know I've uh, played the game when I when I was younger and, and you realize how much timing it takes, how much repetition it takes, and basketball does too, but just not to that degree. If you're mainly because the basket is ten feet tall, if the basket's ten feet high, the basket's going to be ten feet high. So if you're six feet and or going towards seven feet. That's not going to change. The, there's a big advantage there. So the basket doesn't move like a curveball or a slider or yeah, correct. It's it's a stationary. So yeah, I mean overall, I, I thought he was uh, comparable and did what he could. But uh, yeah, after a while, I'm sure the guys were ribbing him. I'm sure some of the pitchers were rolling their eyes like, "Fuck, I gotta face Jordan." Yeah, you know, if he gets a hit off me, I, I'm a I'm a clown in the clubhouse. Right. If I, Strike him out with three off-speed pitches. I'm an asshole. You know, yeah. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those know, two, those two are for sure. it, it helped Jordan become one of the guys again. Uh, as I kind of tweeted out earlier in the week, you know, if you want to have yourself humbled and and kind of know where you're at, um, hanging out with some baseball guys is a good opportunity with for that because uh, there's just not as much. It's just not as much of an ass kissing. Uh, yeah. environment as basketball is, Devin. And let's be honest, uh, whether it's the elite high school players, uh, college players, or even to the NBA, a lot of it involves relationships and ass-kissing. It just mm-hmm. doesn't carry itself like that in minor league baseball. It's, it's, no. Because most of those guys, most yeah. of those guys are, um, I mean, you're riding buses yeah. long, the long way to the game. It's not a, it's not a, uh, yeah. amorous type of thing. Right. And some of some of these dudes are, you know, either, you know, called up to the show and then, you know, had a, had a cup of coffee and then are back in the minors and they're career minor leaguers. It's just, yeah. it's not a glamorous type situation, but yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Baseball, in my opinion, baseball and golf are the two hardest sports to play. Yeah. 
Because like, just hitting, hitting a baseball coming at you at whatever it may be, 100 miles an hour or, or 85 in a curveball or a 90-mile-per-hour curveball, 82-mile-per-hour changeup. It's like, dude, just the the – the change in trajectory, the, you know, the, you can't control what the other person is doing at yeah. any point is just like hitting a baseball is one of the hardest things to do. Not uh, even, even if you hit the ball clean on the meat of the bat and you don't feel the vibration in your hands on the bat, that ball can be screaming and you can just hit it straight to a, a, fielder. a fielder and you're out. And that yeah. was a great at bat. And you knew you hit that ball good. And you still failed in essence. So it's to your point. It's just right. you could even succeed with your bat and still be out. Yeah. So MJ started that his minor league career on a, <laughs> on a with a 13 game hitting streak. Um, but then you know the pitcher started to realize, hey, let's just get this guy out now with some off speed pitches and uh, so hitting 200 in Double A. Yeah. Uh, to answer the question, after not playing for you know decade plus, is is pretty impressive well you would see like danny ainge who's a great athlete danny he was, yeah. probably could have played wide receiver in the nfl i mean he was that good uh he was a great athlete at byu obviously he played for the toronto blue jays he yeah. was a windows line hitter an average hitter he's a way better hitter than michael jordan <laughs> and, right. and, and that leads to my next point or our next guy scott burrell we kind of you know he kind of was one of the main subjects of the these last two episodes uh, he's another guy, Devin, who got drafted in the MLB twice. And I'm sure it wasn't mentioned in the doc, but I'm sure he gave Jordan and other guys gave Jordan shit about Scott Burrell and his baseball skills. Yeah. Hey, that guy's a two sport athlete, a legit two sport athlete. And I think Jordan mentioned it like he was a great athlete and I wanted to push him. He, he rested on his laurels. He didn't uh, play to his potential all the time. It, maybe the game came a little easy. You know, I, Scott Burrell was a great college player, but he kind of went to minor league baseball, came back and played for for some really good UConn teams. Well, if I'm Scott Burrell and Michael Jordan's riding my ass, all I'm going to say is, dude, I got drafted in the major leagues. What, what, what do you got? You know, I can imagine Jordan just going nuts, you know. So what, what's your take on that whole – his whole treatment of Scott Burrell and the whole, you know, rookie and initiation and that thing? It's just his way of leadership, you know, and – Bill Wennington and other guy, I forget who else. Um, Judd Bushler, maybe. Judd Bushler. He was like, yeah, we were, we were afraid of him, but at the end of the day, it, it helped us elevate our games and win championships, and that was his ultimate goal. Yeah. And the more this documentary goes on, the the funnier it becomes for me to watch Jordan get praised for acting this way, and then Kobe Bryant, his whole career, just getting ripped for acting the same exact way. Yeah. Kobe Bryant, you know, challenged his teammates and did the same things that Jordan did um, to elevate their game. But the perspective of, of, you know, each of the guys is different. People yeah. are, are now praising Jordan for elevating his teammates and getting into their asses constantly to where people are like, oh, Kobe Bryant was a dickhead. Yeah, or, Kobe Bryant came off as a Lou for a jackass at times. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, that's the kind of contrast that I'm seeing. But here's the thing, dude. Everyone has a different leadership style, whether it's Tim yeah. Duncan leading by example and kind of being a stoic figure or a Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant who, you know, isn't afraid to challenge you and, and get in your face. And, again, you know, you look at the little uh, Steve Kerr, Michael Jordan 
fight Jordan. Yeah. You know, they got into, you know, they're both competitive competing in practice. They're both competitive dudes and uh, you know, uh, cooler heads didn't prevail. And Jordan popped Kerr after Kerr pushed him. And, and uh, then it shows Jordan and Jordan's pissing himself because he got in a fight with the smallest guy on the court. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so I think it's just, you know, dude, people have different ways of leading. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Jordan won six championships out of six championships and he was the leader of the team and he was the best player on that team. So clearly whatever he did worked. And I don't think you can hate on it because it worked. Yeah. I think one point I, I saw my friends making was I would never let a guy treat me like that. And I saw a yes, lot of he would. If it's my time, Jordan, yes, he would. Well, here's the thing. It's you're talking about it on your high school team or maybe at the Drew League or maybe at a, you know, a semi-pro league or even playing pickup, like competitive pickup ball. Yeah, you wouldn't let Jordan talk to you that way. I agree with that. But when you're in a business, if if Scott Burrell or somebody of that nature um, gets into a serious rift with Jordan or even fights him and one or both of them get injured or hurt, and then Scott Burrell gets cut, what's what's who's going to pick him up? You know, it becomes a case where Jordan – have the leverage because of his stature. And if you're a, a borderline player or a second round draft pick, yeah, you're like you said, Devin, you're going to take some of it because you want to maintain your position in the league. You're not going to be a guy that, oh, that guy's a troublemaker. He's a fighter. He wants to fight all his teammates all the time. That's not going to work because the NBA brass is going to know about that and hear about that. You can't, in other words, you, you're, you're, Reaction can't be, I'm just going to go into a street fight every time somebody calls me out. Like, that, it's just not – it's a business. It's not pick-up basketball. So yeah. I think people kind of have to remember that thing. I, I'm with you because of the because of the stature of the game, the being paid to play. You're just not going to go crazy, hit Michael Jordan with the baseball bat because he called you out of your name. Like, it just – that's not probably not going to happen. You know? <laughs> Here's the thing: you were winning championships, and yeah. uh, you know you got the greatest player ever to live pushing you to be better. You're, I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna risk that if you're if you're smart. Yeah. Um, let's move to some uh, decision that you know wasn't really smart and kind of marred uh, Scottie Pippen's career. Um, this is probably one of the biggest talking points to come out of the recent episodes of The Last Dance with Scottie Pippen refusing to go into the end of a playoff game against the Knicks um, because the game-winning shot was not – or game-winning play was not drawn up for him to get the shot. Yeah. And instead, you know, Phil Jackson drew up the play for Tony Kukoc. And, of course, as history will always remember and show, Tony Kukoc made the shot and the Bulls won that game. But Scottie Pippen um, was on the bench for that moment. And, Ronnie, it's interesting to see Pippen's you know character arc in this go from yeah. – you know, a guy who comes from humble beginnings and made an NBA superstar of himself to a guy who, you know, people are like questioning his dedication to his team. And, um, you know, that decision was kind of a, uh, uh, a nick on his career. Was it yeah. a nick or a dent? What do you think? Uh, I think it's a dent. Okay. Well, if, if Michael Jordan's playing baseball and Michael Jordan, 
probably doesn't even have the phone numbers of half of the guys on the team. He's got yeah, he's got his number. So so he's just kind of like if for him to call Phil Jackson the next day and be like, hey Phil, Scotty, I think he really screwed that one up. He's yeah. not gonna be able to live that down. That's a guy who's not even really, I mean, he's gonna obviously pay basketball again, but he's not even on the team. So for him to be that first reaction, I think that was a big moment. And I, I remember that as a big moment because uh, I was kind of along the lines that, you know, Scottie Pippen was a really, really, really good player. And, but he, he, he wasn't that player without Jordan. That was always my take. Even when they were winning the first set of championships, I was like, Scottie Pippen can't go to another team and win the championship. And some people didn't agree with that. You know, oh, he's a great player, and I get it. So that was kind of the argument then. So it kind of just reinforced what everybody who thought he wasn't a leader or thought he wasn't an uh, a alpha player in the NBA. It just reinforced that. Okay. Unfortunately. That makes um, sense. And it, it, it just, that's the way it's going to be. The fact that Kony Kuko hit the shot <laughs> only made it stick out more. Worse, yeah. Yeah, it only made it stick out more. And Tony was a really good player, as we came to see. You know, obviously he he helped out those teams quite tremendously. Um, they did a good job that season overall. I think the documentary hit it. You know that Phil Jackson did a good job of that team. The team was a good team, uh, but they lost in the second round of the playoffs. I think what's even more striking is where they were. In 94, 95, the second year when Pippen could have led them. Mm-hmm. They were struggling at times. Yeah, they weren't yeah. very good. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were much over 500. Mm-hmm. In, in January or February of that season, that kind of sticks out to me as much as him sitting out that play. And then obviously I didn't know. I knew how big that moment was then, but I didn't know that Bill Cartwright had kind of had a, a big powwow with them and, and they were really upset and emotional. That that was good information to share with the public. You know, Bill Cartwright kind of being one of the elder statesmen in the statesmen in the league. I kind of forgot that Bill Cartwright was still on the team after Michael Jordan re, uh, retired, but he was. I mean, he was up there. You know, Bill Cartwright came into the NBA like I mentioned. He was an All Star in 1980, his rookie year. So he was already in his 14th, 15th season. Um, you know, had a lot of respect. Played four years in in college, so he was definitely up there in age. Devin, he was he was probably about. 39 years old, 38 years old. Um, so for him to go and say, Scotty, you failed us and, you know, call him out. And that was a big moment. And if you win a big game like that and you're down 2-1 after Kukok wins that game and your team is crying, basically, or you guys are having an emotional uh, upheaval or breakdown, you're not going to win that series. And they no. did. You're not going to win the title. That's your your energy's not in the right uh, place in my mind. So that kind of yeah, I, I I'm with people that kind of leaves a big stain on Scottie Pippen. I also thought, um, even as a big a moment, and he's a great player, and I do think he's a top thirty player ever. Was him what happened against the Lakers in two thousand? Like with the Portland. Yeah, when he's with that's a better team than that ninety four Bulls team. Uh, they give up a 16-point lead, and Brian Shaw hits that three-pointer at the buzzer. 
And Scottie Pippen is 0 for 3 in that fourth quarter. I think that's another huge. And they had a few, they had games earlier in that series that they could have won. Um, yeah. That, you know, I think that's a, those are two big dings on Scottie Pippen. Yeah, if you, you look at, you know, look back a few episodes a few weeks ago, everyone's like, oh my God, Scottie Pippen, seven years, 18 million. The Bulls screwed him, pay the man. And after this last season, everyone's like, yeah, screw Scottie Pippen. He's, he's a quitter or whatever, right? Yeah, they were going to negotiate that caught seven-year deal after that. Right. So it kind of shows that, hey, you know, maybe the Bulls might have known something or had an intuition about that. Um, But I think, you know, the upstart uh, Bulls and, you know, in Jordan's first year of retirement, making the playoffs, when when Scotty did what he did and they lost that series, I think the rest of that carried over into the next year. And that ended up being why they were you know, an average team yeah, under Scotty's leadership. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe the guys weren't rallying uh, behind him as the leader as much as they were um, in 94. Yeah, but, it, it became a big moment. And like you said, they weren't that good. So I think the brass knew, and they come off as pretty smart guys, Reinstorf and Kraus, that the 94 and 95 season was evidence that if Jordan retired, why are we going to give Scottie Pippen a long-term deal? We're going to be good, but not good enough to win. And now we're the 80 Celtics again. Right. right. Got to rebuild at some point, you know? Yeah. So I think, again, they look good for like the hundredth time in the documentary. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that's all. That's another funny part of this thing that keeps, keeps popping up. Let's move to the 96 finals against the Seattle Supersonics. And this is probably the funniest moment so far from all of the last dance episodes was uh, so the Bulls won that series four to four games to two and six yeah. games. They won the first three and then um, there was a little bit of a momentum shift uh, and Seattle won two straight and Gary yeah. Payton gave himself a little bit of credit for <laughs> Jordan defensively and making it tough on MJ. And then uh, we get that classic moment that I'm sure we're going to see for years to come and in meme gif form uh jordan laughing watching gary payton describe how he made it difficult for him uh defensive uh, on defense and uh jordan says um he had no problem with the glove what do you remember about that series ronnie specifically uh gary payton's defense on michael jordan yeah um i remember about that series Devin, and i'm gonna uh and one high line moment is I saw Seattle play during the season a few times. I liked them. I liked Detlef Shrimp. I liked the camp. I mean, yeah, Sean Kemp was an exciting player to watch. Yeah. You know, just during the course of a season. If Sean Kemp was around in the daily YouTube and, and Twitter, he people would just be in love with him. He was just he'd be like, he'd be like, he'd be like Zion Williamson. He'd be Zion Williamson, yeah. no doubt. So um they were fun to watch and George give George Carl credit. You know, he came from CBA coaching. The, they were really good, like 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98. They, they won like an average of about 60 games. Yeah. It was probably their best team. Um, but when I remember it, I, I, and I even made reference to him, like Hersey Hawkins. He was good. You know, Bradley was a good shooter, good player. Like this guy has no chance in hell to guard Jordan. Like, yeah. And that's kind of what I remember. They, I think they had Nate McMillan on the team. No, yep, yep. He was a veteran, a KG veteran, good player, but he wasn't going to be able to do anything against Jordan. 
So I remember that series, and I just what I remember 20 years later, 25 years later, whatnot, is that the Sonics didn't play to their capability that they showed during the regular season every night. I think they're going to look back at it, and, and I think that's what their fans are going to feel like. They gave a good effort, but they didn't push the Bulls as much as they should have with Jordan playing as he did. Jordan didn't have his greatest series. He he had a definitely didn't play as good as he did against Phoenix, against Dan Marley and that group, uh, and Kevin Johnson. He shot really low from the field. Um, I I saw these remarks that that George Carl thought that Gary Payton should have gave him more. They wanted to give him more offensively, so they didn't want him to guard Jordan. But I think if Jordan shoots eight for twenty four and scores twenty five points instead of going, you know. 15 for 21 and scoring 40 points that that's a win for Seattle. Yeah. So I don't care what Gary Payne scores. Where's Detlef Shrimp and Hersey? Those guys can't, they should be scoring. Yeah. So I want to try to slow down Jordan as much as possible. If I, again, if I'm just coaching, I want to try to slow down Jordan as much as possible. I got the defensive player of the year. It seemed like it worked in game uh, four and five. Uh, again, maybe the Bulls relaxed because they were up 3-0. Sure. I could see that a little bit too. But if they were able to get one of the first two, you know, game two or game three, might have been a little different, just the whole intensity of the series. I just didn't think Seattle played up to speed. I think they were, they were a little better than what they showed. I think they might have been nervous the first game or just a little out of sorts, but they didn't play as good as they could have. Uh, and obviously that Bulls team was really good. I, what I remember about the series definitely a lot of is Jordan, uh, you know, playing good enough to win, kind of like B.J. Armstrong mentioned, Jordan knew what he had to do to win. He didn't play great. Mm-hmm. And I also remember Frank Burkowski. I don't remember him. He was kind of an enforcer, an inside player. Him and Rodman were just poking <laughs> each other, poking each other, elbowing each other. Uh, it, it just distracted like one or two of the games completely, just completely. It was kind of like the Carl Malone tripping over him, pushing him. And that was Rodman. And it worked. I thought got Seattle out of their game a little bit. Frank, yeah. McCarthy, he was there to piss Rodman off, but all it did was piss himself off and piss yeah. Seattle. You can't, you can't yeah. get into a pissing match with Dennis Rodman. You're not going to win. Yeah. Um, but back to your point about George Carl wanting we're saying that he wanted more, you know, Gary to be able to have energy to produce offensively. I mean, I get that part of it um, because guarding Michael Jordan is uh, is no easy task, right? Um, you you got to give you know, everything you got on that end of the floor to, to try and stop him. So in game, what is it, game four, when they made that switch and Gary exclusively guarded MJ, um, MJ went six for 19 from the field, 23 points. So that's a relatively inefficient night. That's what you want. Yeah. yeah, that's what you want. But the next game, which um, Seattle also won, MJ was 11 for 22 from the field. Uh, so, I mean, again, how, how much of a of a difference was it? Who knows? But yeah. Gary Payton at the time was in, you know, in NBA history is one of the best defenders in the league that the league's ever seen. Yeah. So you would think that you're going to put your best defender on the best offensive player in the series. Yeah. I mean, Devin, just to, to your point, I'm looking at these stats. Gary Payton averaged 18 points a game in the series. 
shot 45%. Again, it wasn't a high shooting series. You know, it wasn't a lot of guys shooting in the in the in the 50 percentile. Now, if Gary Payton averaged 27 points a game or 20, if, if Jordan averaged 27 and Gary averaged 25, then I would say, yeah, you know, that got got that got us to where we want. But he averaged 18. So yeah. You can make up you can make yeah. up 18 points between Sean Kemp, yeah. Devin Schramm, Hersey Hawkins, Nate McMillan, yeah. uh, any of these guys. You can make up those 18 points. Yeah. And it's not like Gary Payton's gonna score zero. Gary yeah. Payton's still gonna score 14. 14. Yeah. So again, if he didn't score 25, I thought the strategy didn't work. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. So they lost. So you know, it, it was very interesting to see that. I don't, I don't remember the game as that Peyton like Rock yeah. yeah, I just remember it, it made it difficult. He should have been on him more. In hindsight, twenty twenty, I, I, you know, Seattle had a good team, and and Sean Camp did his job. Uh, I remember him; he had a good series. Rodman couldn't guard him. Uh, you know, what I mean? he couldn't guard him that well. He had a good series. Uh, Detlef Shrimp, again, they didn't shoot well enough from the field against this pretty damn good defensive team. Um, shrimp didn't shoot a high percentage either, so that's kind of what I remember. I thought it was funny statement, like you said that that meme, is, that gif is going to be used all the time. You know, Gary Payton always has something to say, and uh, it's it's good stuff. Uh, it, it, Seattle had a lot of fans on the West Coast. Like I said, I think yeah. people were big fans of of became good big fans of Payton because he was kind of an irritating guy. And nobody saw him in college. I mean, people weren't watching Oregon State games like that. No. Uh, but he was a great college player. If you yeah. follow the game, he was really good. One of the best players ever in the Pac-12 ever, by far, no yeah. doubt about it. But you didn't know about him until he, he, you know, the rain man came and they started throwing alley-oops and shit like that. So, um, <laughs> here's, you know. Here's the thing I hate most about the current state of yeah. social media sports fandom is people are going to – people are going to knock Gary Payton's career just yeah. because of this one moment in this documentary. Oh yeah. No, he was a great player. I mean, this dude was just, he was one, he's one of the best point guards ever to live. I mean, ever to live. Yeah. Give him a lot of credit. He kind of, uh, was, a you know, he didn't get, he was a good underclass player at, at uh skyline high. He played with Greg Foster who played in the NBA, played at UCLA and, uh, yeah. He kind of uh, stepped up his game a lot as a senior. He was an all-state player, averaged about 20 points a game. And some East Coast schools were looking at him, and they decided to pass, and he went to Oregon State and just – he made those guys show that uh, they probably shouldn't have passed on him. You know, a few other bigger schools should have really tried maybe a little harder to get him in there. I, I will say this, though, you know, is it was really hard, and they would have to rely on guys like Frank and, and other people at the time Don Mead and maybe even Jerry Freitas, I, I don't know. But to the OAL games were uh, at 3 o'clock, Devin, in the afternoon because it was so yeah. – at that time, you know, there was a crap ec- 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 ah, epidemic in <laughs> cities. Uh, you know, the games were kind of dangerous if, if you didn't know what you were doing or where you were going. So games were at 3 o'clock. So I would imagine a lot of scouts didn't even get a chance to see Gary play. Sure. You know, 3 o'clock game. You're gonna to have to make special arrangements to get there. So well, what else does Freitas have to do? <laughs> Freitas was probably there at two thirty in his seat, asking uh, Gary what is his, you know, what his favorites were. Yeah, yeah as, as Gary's warming up during layup lines. Gary's yeah, trying lines, yeah, and up there now. <laughs> Antonio Davis and, and and Gary Payton and and Hook Mitchell and and 
and Greg Foster what their favorites were. But yeah, back to your point, you know, kudos to Gary. He had a great career. Um, yeah, you know, uh, we didn't talk much about this and we won't. And we talked about guys who got mentioned and who didn't. Um, it's very interesting that uh, his kind of his road dog, his kind of best bud, uh, George, he, he got a little bit of play, but they haven't talked about how uh, he met Jordan. And then obviously we, we mentioned uh, guys who didn't get mentioned much last week. We didn't talk about Sonny Vaccaro. And there's no need to mention it because it's such a big uh, – he obviously had such a big impact on presenting to Jordan's family, uh, giving Nike's pitch. And obviously Jordan liked the pitch, even though he wasn't very excited about it at that day. He obviously thought it was the right move, and so did his agent. So if you watch that, it, it kind of made it seem like David Falk was, like, thought of the idea and presented it to Nike, which is not true. Nike was the one obviously doing the presenting. And I do think David Falk deserves credit because his agency was kind of uh, putting individuals out there, like, because people were mentioning, well, what are you going to do with a basketball player? Like, it's not a tennis player, but, like, he did – he did the right thing for him marketing wise. Yeah. Obviously Nike had to offer the deal for him to get that in motion. So very interesting that he got no mention. And if you watch his 30 for 30 or heard our previous podcast of all the things that Sonny went through to bring that deal to the forefront, I, I we don't have to spend much time on it. It's just very interesting that he wasn't mentioned. It's just, but, it's a ridiculously huge miss. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, but it's, it's what we expect because, None of the Nike, in quote unquote, clients or employees, uh, employers spoke on his documentary, so you knew they weren't going to speak much in this. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Jordan I is the company man. Jordan is probably you know he's he's rolling with the Phil Knight group, and you you can't blame him. That's just what it is. Uh, it's kind of sad that it's come to that because you know no none of those guys spoke on Sonny's documentary. But uh, we obviously went through it with, with, with Kobe's death, and we got the details. So just go listen to one of our early episodes if you want to know more about that and that relationship and how Sonny uh, met, you know, met Jordan at the 84 Olympics. It's, he covered it all, so there's no point of us to go too deep into it. Yeah, last thing before we move on uh, to our next topic, Ronnie. Uh, they briefly touched on the – the Space Jam open runs, how, you know, Michael used that um, and his time, you know, on set uh, filming that movie to kind of um, remake his body. They yeah. built, they built him uh, a weight room and a, and a gym um, on the Warner brothers studios uh, campus. And uh, he, like you said, you know, he spent, you know, whatever it was, 17 months or whatever it was building a baseball body. And he had to rebuild his body to, uh, you know, endure the rigors of a, of an NBA season. Um, besides that, you know, he invited uh, a bunch of players, NBA guys to come to open runs in that facility. Uh, you were, uh, how old were you during, what was that? 96 or 97? Yeah, that about 96, 97. So yeah. I heard about it and I knew he was filming, but I didn't get much insight uh, okay. because I was in Santa Barbara at the time. So, gotcha. you know, I, I wasn't able to just to come down or, Hey, can we get in there? Can we, you know, sneak up in there? I, I didn't, I wasn't right. privy to like the insights of, of what was going on. I heard about people talking about it and I knew that they were playing and that was pretty cool to hear 
and that, that Jordan was getting a lot of high-end players, UCLA players, NBA, you know, guys would come and, and other, prof- you know, famous athletes, not just NBA players. So, um, you know, that's, that was good. I don't know if he would have been able to, obviously he probably mandated that, Hey, I need somewhere to work out. I can't, I'm not a, you know, he's not Francis Ford Coppola or freaking, you know, uh, you know, some big A-list actor where he's just going to be acting all day and, and hang out in the lobby or some break room. No, like he needed to be playing. So yeah. out. Uh, I think that was all pretty cool. It's funny that our, our guy, DeAnthony Langston, who runs the, who, you know, who um, played at Long Beach State, played at Bourbon Day, and he does events, and he's involved with the real run. He's, it's actually his event, and he does a high school uh, showcase in that name. You know, he got into it with Jordan. <laughs> Some of those runs, uh, Chris Johnson, who we've had on the pod, uh, got into got a lot of uh, got a lot of insight and got uh, just took it all in. A lot of knowledge. And a lot of good uh, run for him as a college player to be able to play with Jordan. I'm sure he that's fond memory for him, uh, you know, as a college guy, not really an NBA level player, but a very good college player to be like, hey, yeah, I've been playing pickup runs with Jordan. I got I figured that's got to be really memorable for him, as it probably was for other guys. So and in yeah. the meantime, Jordan is getting back in shape and working out with Tim Grover. Um, now, why do you think? Is it just the Detroit thing, Devin? Why don't why don't other guards like now? Maybe they do. Maybe we just don't see it. Maybe they are all a lot bigger. So why are they not like doing Tim Grover type workouts and taking their game to the next level? Am, am I just missing that? Are they or like are they just don't have that dedication and ethic? You talk, you're talking current, the current, yeah, or more current guys. Why are they not just more jacked? Because because that's not important in this this era right now. Is it's uh it's more about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finesse, speed, yeah. uh, kind of fluidity. Yeah. You know, be, it's not. There's not a whole lot of bully ball going on now, nowadays. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Um, it's more like you know, blow by speed, uh, yeah. hero steps, and creativity around the basket rather than you know, uh, taking a bump, staying on balance, and you know, finishing through contact. It's not really like that anymore. Yeah, uh, with the freedom of movement, le- lack of hand checks. Yeah. It's better to be uh, crafty and elusive than it would be to be strong and and physical. So yeah, very interesting. You know, um, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara had Jerry Pym uh, as their coach when I was there. Devin, um, he was starting there, meaning he was already the coach when I was there, and was the coach for a long, long time. He was kind of like the dean of Big West coaches at that time. He was getting some pretty good players, not as good as when in the early nineties or eighties when Jerry Tarkanian and, and UNLV was part of the league, they had a lot more exposure and Tarkanian lifted the whole league mm-hmm. at NBA players on other teams. Long Beach state had NBA players and you see Santa Barbara had some NBA players. They didn't really have NBA players when I went there. Um, but there were still very good players around town. And there was a guy who, who was a top hundred players. He's a buddy of mine. He lives in Vegas. Now Wayne Butts, He's from Georgia, Midgeville, Georgia, 6'6 shooter, played at UCSB for um, for Jerry Pym. Uh, and they had another guy from Santa Monica High, one of the better players there, Carrick DeHart, who was a an overseas-level player. At that time, he was already about 35, 40 years old. And he's one of those guys that could just play all day. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was still the best player around. 
as good or better than any of the scholarship players. And um, at that time, there were still guys around town who could put together a five, to be quite frankly, who were just as good as the five guys or five guys on scholarship. You know, so it was competitive. Mm -hmm. I played some of those games, and I was obviously in my early 20s. And I just remember that uh, the level of play it was and how good it was. And it helped me tremendously, even if I was one of the lesser players. And I just remember for a little bit of time, I was hanging out with some football players. And the guys that played at Santa Barbara City College were my friends. And the UC Santa Barbara didn't have football. They dropped football maybe 10 years earlier. And when I was lifting weights with those guys, I would just it was just like night and day how much more I could contribute, I thought. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so... You know, for kids that are playing now, I know, like you mentioned, you know, it's more of skill and outside shooting and, and having your 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 skill level up. But if if you can work out and you have the ability to and the desire to do do it because it helps your rebounding, it just helps your um, helps your confidence going up against better players. If you're strong, physically strong, you feel you at least have a chance. You're in the ball game because skill wise, I wasn't in the ball game against character heart and some of these players that were that were playing, but strength wise, I was like, I was young, I was in shape and it just gave me a chance, you know, like yeah. gave me a chance to even not be like a, 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 a weak link or like the totally weakest link on the court. You know, we had, we had, we had no neck, no neck Ronnie Flores out there yeah. uh, giving, giving some elbows. to some. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you just feel stronger. You just feel so like, obviously, like I said, I was in my early twenties, so I was about as good a shape as I ever was. So, yeah. no, I think, I get your point, you know, because the biggest jump that I've heard, you know, that I see is uh, from the high school to college level for players is number one, defense. Yeah. Guarding at that level. And number two is being able to compete with and, and compete with the physicality of the next level of guys who are, are already in a college weight program. And um, so if you're, if you can prepare yourselves on, those two levels, the sooner you're going to be able to contribute to whichever college program you uh, you choose. Um, right. Let's let's move on to uh, something that you know we hope happens at some point, but it has to happen safely. Is the NBA slowly but surely looking into um, potentially returning to action um, in some form? So the league held a virtual meeting with owners and executives, and I think they also took a poll of some of the, you know, bigger players in the league on whether they want to, you know, continue the season. And I think everyone, it was a resounding yes. So they tried to lay out a, a plan. And you know, here's some of the research that I did that, uh, on the process uh, and what it will include. Yeah. We standardized coronavirus testing uh, among each of the 30 NBA teams, uh, a campus style setting uh, where the players, coaches, and officials, um, and executives will, will, you know, basically live right. Um, during this time while they're playing, uh, there's going to be no fans. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the locations that they're considering are Las Vegas and Walt Disney world in Orlando, Florida, because both of those areas or both of those, uh, regions can like Walt Disney world has a sports complex yeah. that the NBA can take over. Um, then the Vegas has multiple, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. I guess, uh, uh, Venues even in the event, events, event places like, uh, the Orleans or yeah. Mandalay Bay or whatever. They have areas that they can build, 
they can build a floor. They can build a floor easily. Um, so the Miami Heat recently opened its facility for individual workouts. Uh, players are obviously, you know, getting their temperatures checked. Um, they had to, you know, they can only play on a on a court workout on a court by themselves. I mean, that's more cool show, Devin, in my mind, because yeah. what NBA player can't work out in his home or somewhere private on his own anyway. That's what I'm thinking. Right. So I get the facilities opening and, and taking precautions in that way. But I mean, it's just like, I want basketball back as much as the next guy. But when you look at this, it's just like, what happens when a player tests positive? Is that whole team quarantined? So what happens to the, to the, so the team that, that is quarantined, the team that just played the day before has to be quarantined. Okay. Then what happens to the schedule? when that team is supposed to play the next day, but they can't because they're quarantined. Uh, Do the officials of that game have to be quarantined? Then you bring in more officials from who aren't on the campus. It's just, dude, I mean, there are so many moving parts to this. I just, I just don't, I just don't see it happening. And the actual execution, Devin have to be ironed out. But for me, the bigger issue is the perception and the semantics. And what I mean by that is NBA players and this is just being honest, are the least people that have to get back to work. Mm-hmm. They don't have – they're not hurting to get back to work. Most of the Lakers are not hurting to get back to work. They're, they can pay their bills. Yeah. They can, you know, most of America has to get back to work. So if you're testing these NBA players, I think at some point you're going to have to donate funds and or test equipment to the community that the game is in or that you're housing or that each NBA team is going to have to donate masks and, and or testing equipment to their local community, like the Lakers would be to the LA or the Warriors yeah. to San Francisco. Cause then it comes off looking bad. Why are you giving millionaire in shape 20 year olds tests when 70 year olds can't get it? Yeah. It's just the, It comes off looking like, ouch, are, is this the really the step you want to take? So there's going to have to be some, I guess, what is it, some give back or some public relations to make it where people are, are going to be happy about it. That's one. And then uh, second is if you have the season or any portion, doesn't it push back the next season? Yeah, it's going to – I mean, yeah, it's going to start later. The shorter the next season. So now you're impacting two seasons. Yeah. So that has to be taken into account. Do you want to impact the following season? You know, uh, I, I probably wouldn't. I, I probably want to get back to the normal season as much as possible. Um, or maybe you just have one single tournament later in the season. I think what it is is the veterans of the league, whether it's LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, they know that their window, father time's not waiting on anybody. Yeah. So they want to get to – they want to crown an NBA champ because they think it's going to be one of those teams where a lot of, I would say, the secondary teams or the teams that are not in the playoffs are probably thinking, let's just cancel the season. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. You know, right. It becomes about legacies and about titles for the higher-end tier players because, again, they're not – they're toward the back end of their career. So they don't, they don't have much time to waste, Devin, I mean, in terms of how many opportunities they're going to get. LeBron's right. be another year older next season. Yeah, and he has a you know as a, he's on a team right now that it could will be you know 
potential Western Conference finalists and potential NBA champions. So obviously, like you said, we're, uh, those guys want to get back to the season and and you know compete for an NBA championship because it's going to look better on that top ten list that we just uh, we wow. just discussed once they retire. Yeah. But, so I think there's a lot of moving parts. As you said, the execution is still far away. Again, because our states are obviously whatever they do, it's not going to be in California. <laughs> it's going to no, be yeah. in Arizona or Florida. Or Nevada. Or yeah. Even Nevada's moving slower than Florida True. or Arizona. True. You just you know, that's another thing with this thing. Every state is operating on its own uh timetable. Uh, here in California, Devin, uh, we've had some confusing statements in the last week. It's just like, what are we saying and doing? Well, I think it's just the way people are interpreting those statements. They're not they're reading they're reading headlines which are designed to make you click on a story. Yeah. Uh, headline writers, I mean, it, sometimes they'll they'll read the story that was yeah. written and and edit or whatever. The headline writers are going to do what they need to do to get someone to click on that story. So, you read a headline doesn't necessarily mean that that's what a story says. That's just a little bit of um, advice for people who uh you know, don't read uh, yeah. a story thoroughly and take the headline for, for meaning what the story said. But uh, yeah, I just, I mean, it's going to be hard for the NBA or any, any um, team sport, team professional sport to really, you know, find a, the perfect protocol for this and, and bring it back safely without scrutiny. It's going to be tough. Yeah, I agree with you. And that leads into our next point in our next segment is I think the economics playing into it. We're talking about basically false sports at uh, many college conferences and the lower levels. And I believe also the Cal State system is canceled like in-class instruction on campus. And that probably means that false sports is done um, for those conferences and those schools. That does impact some football, not a lot of football, but a lot of those schools don't have football anymore, but that impacts fall sports. Mm -hmm. And then let's be honest, college basketball starts in the fall, meaning yeah. workouts, involuntary workouts, involuntary workouts. And then it gets back to, like you said, Devin, and, and I mentioned is now we're talking economics. If you're Johnny Jump Shot and your parents <laughs> don't have, uh, you know, you don't have much means and there's no... There's no rims at the park. You don't work out. But if you're uh, – Be careful. If you're Bronny James, you can find a court. Your dad, in essence, if you don't already have one, can build your court yeah. and, and play and yeah. get your skills level up. So we're at now we're at the situation where everybody's not going to be in the same boat across the country for this. It's going to be fragmented. And the kids that are not well off are going to be getting the short end of the stick, it looks like, once again. Yeah. Um, so you look at these fall high school sports and if the NBA or major league baseball or the NHL or uh, premier league soccer can't figure it out, how in the hell is a high school program or, or a high school district going to figure out how to bring back team sports during, during this and keep everyone safe and healthy? I mean, they don't, they don't have the means of the NBA money wise or, resource-wise way more kids than the nba is dealing with adults right it's way bigger volume of number right you know so, of, of participants the 
I mean, you look at, you know, event operators are, are having a hard time digesting all of this and, uh, you know, they're losing money, uh, losing exposure to their brand. Uh, kids are losing opportunities to be seen by college coaches. Um, it, it's impacting a wide variety of people, right? Yes. But uh, um, how can, how can you, how can, how can one comfortably assume liability? for this right i mean uh my wife's in insurance and um a lot of people have been hitting her up lately the insureds within her company the companies that that um she takes care of and and they're like oh do i have coverage for pandemic insurance and she's like no because pandemic listen listen this is crazy one year's worth of pandemic insurance costs a company four million dollars meaning regardless of the size of the company in essence or just in California or in that or no, like, all, all over the place. No, she, she, she represent I mean, her company uh, provides insurance for companies all over the country. Okay. Um, and just like the general, I forget which company it was, and I don't want to like, I'm not sure yeah. if there's a confidentiality. Yeah. You don't yeah. Wanna, no, yeah. But uh, I'm not sure what company it was, but one company had pandemic insurance and yeah. they, they paid $4 million for that policy for one year. Yeah, like if you're Wimbledon, yeah, Wimbledon, they were covered because they had right. pandemic insurance. You think they paid like yeah. multiple, multiple millions of dollars for one year? They're Wim- Wimbledon and they're long established and they have that money. If you're, you know, a, a vendor director or operator or like a Jerry Freitas, a, a middle, a middle, a middle mill operator, you don't, you can't afford pandemic insurance. Maybe right. Nike can. Yeah, but why would they? The risk is not – there's not going to be a pandemic all the time is until this point, you know, so uh, coming into this year. So, Devin, we had Eito Udumima on our preview – one of our previous pods, and he was talking about the stoppage of the season and, and AU and how he was getting his top players prepared uh, maybe for the draft and for the, and to take scholarships that maybe – uh, they wouldn't have taken because there's going to be no spring. And now we know there's going to be no summer. So yeah. now June is out of the equation. July yeah. is basically out of the equation for live scouting in person. Yep. Um, and he talked about it and he mentioned that Adidas is going to have to look at the guys that they contract out, um, you know, uh, deals to uh, team deals, shoot uh, gear deals that they may cut back. Now we're seeing, in public, the public sphere that Under Armour is worth maybe one fourth to one fifth of what was worth five years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, Under Armour may be cutting back. Nike's probably in a different boat, but even they they will chop the fat at some point. So where does this leave uh, guys that are looking for shoe deals and independent event operators? Let's say we get rolling back in October. Where and then school's already starting for these kids. They're doing homeschool. Where, where does this leave everybody? Uh, it leaves everybody in a place of having to reinvent themselves. Yeah. Um, or, or you know, club teams having to go an independent route. Or, I mean, here's the here's the crazy part. It, it could, if Nike, Adidas, Under Armour all have to scale back their their circuits or, or do away with them all together. I mean, it could help the, 
it could help the, the independent operator, independent mid-level operator. Um, while it might be hurting that person now in the current state that we're in and not being able to run events in the spring and summer down the line. I mean, if, if we're, when we're able to get through this and resume, you know, normal basketball activities, if that's ever really a, a possibility, and it probably is, uh, it could, you know, help them twofold. So yeah. everything could balance out uh, pretty well. Um, unless, you know, Adidas and Under Armour and, and Nike continue their, their, the way they did things, you know, in the years past. But again, like you said, Under Armour is losing quite a bit of money. Um, overall, as, not, overall, just overall, not just from grassroots, right. Yeah. So you'd assume that, um, you know, the, the shoe deals and the, the flights and the hotels and all those things for some of those, you know, borderline shoe deal programs probably go away. Yeah, I agree with you there. And it probably opens up opportunities for a, a individual or independent event operator to to snag those teams for their for their tournaments. But that's that's way in the future. Um, but like we like we said, for two twenty one, two twenty two, two twenty three prospects, um, it's unfortunate what's happening now because uh, the NCAA extended the dead recruiting period through the end of June, which means. Um, no high school section seven section seven fairfax uh summer classic uh the modern day summer league those are all out yes Uh, not gonna happen so as uh, we expected also the ncaa academies which were would have been in their second year i attended the west one last year uh it was solid it needed uh as we we mentioned on pods then, which was about 10 months ago, you know, we, we talked about Section 7. We brought on Colin Poff, we, we, who, who won one of the divisions for Windward. Um, we talked about how, how the event could improve. I wrote about it on BallsLife.com. So that was – those improvements seemed like they were going to come, Devin. People yeah. were listening to the powers to be in the media, whether it's um, Dinos Trigonis, whether it's myself, Frank. You know, Steve Lavin and others were taking the input of, of people who are at events all the time. And it looks like those events were going to improve. Well, now they're on hold. Yeah. It's going to be the second year. So we'll see what happens. Uh, again, those were good events because school was out and kids can go. So now they're going to have, you know, virtual or digital online classrooms. Can they do it in September? It's a little more difficult. No more difficult communication. Kids have more responsibility with school, regular academic school. So like you said, for 221, that's very difficult. Maybe they could delay it or maybe they scrap it to come back next year. I, I do think there will be some kind of, if they do indeed come back and we get the okay from, from local government and health officials, that there will be some life period potentially in the fall, but it won't look the same. And we don't know exactly what that will look like. All you know is that it'll, it'll impact people that, you know, can't get into the gym right now. And like we said, if you're if you're Sharif O'Neal and you're going to LSU, you could probably find a gym yeah. because, you know, you have the access and means. If you're a kid at Washington Prep or Fremont in L.A., it's going to be harder to find a gym right now. That's just yeah. the way of life. You know, it's just the way – unfortunate that's where we're at. Yeah, it's unfortunate, and it's going to affect a lot of people across the board. Yeah, and it's already having some impact locally as far as two twenty ones committing early. So, uh, yes, I mean, uh, yesterday uh, James Nobles from Birmingham committed to Loyola Marymount, and then this morning 
which would be Thursday morning. Uh, David Elliott, also from Birmingham, committed to Loyola Marymount. So I think we're going to see more and more kids start to take uh, those early offers and opportunities and make sure that they have their spot set, um, especially in 221, because it, it, the opportunities are, are becoming more and more scarce as uh, this continues to uh, to drag out and uh, live periods are canceled and tournaments are canceled and uh, dead recruiting periods get extended. So, um, but uh, one opportunity to close this out, you guys can still take advantage of. Uh, I've gone through about 30 to 40 uh, submissions of players across the country submitting their film to me. I break it down, you know, give you some things that you can, you can uh, work on your game at home at the park. Uh, if you have access to a gym, uh, I break down your game film, semi full game film. And I give you some tools that are developed by my friend and trainer, AJ Gaspora that are uh, online that you guys can use to your advantage. Um, find my email, Devin at ballslife.com. Uh, shoot me a note with uh, some game film, your name, uh, the number you, uh, uniform you wear uh, during the game so that I can uh, identify you. And uh, I'm working through a whole lot right now. So uh, I'll get those back to you ASAP. And, you know, the, Ronnie, that's the thing that, you know, kids can use. It's a tool kids can use to get some feedback from someone who watches a lot of basketball uh, on their yeah. game. Yeah, that's good. Uh, kids, if you're listening to this, you take advantage if you can, when you can. Again, get your highlights in quality order get to the best highlights right away uh devin and other scouts and and college coaches don't have time to go through your little dance routine your tiktok routine at the beginning <laughs> that out now, that's another good thing we could probably talk about in future pod devin is what to look for on tape you know yeah, yeah. Um, so you know get to the nuts and bolts of your skill set uh even put that information your height weight even on the video probably helps Yep. If you know how to highlight yourself, that that probably helps. Um, you know, put a full game and maybe even some highlights at the end of the beginning, but definitely want to watch a full one full game or one full half. Yeah, it may be, and uh, take advantage of that. Uh, you know, that's a good opportunity. So, and for some, it's the only opportunity right now, and it may be the only opportunity for the next three to four months. We'll keep you guys up to date on that uh as it as it comes along as we get any updates but i like i said the nca academies won't happen in its current form or the form they had last year there will be no you know pangos all american camp in its form right now this summer no nba players association camp and other local and shoe company run events so we'll we'll keep you guys up to date devin we're, we've tried to um help with the with the covid19 uh you know initiative why don't you tell people where, what Ball is Life is doing and on a small scale to try to help with this COVID-19? Yeah, so Ball is Life is uh, – we have masks on our on our shop.ballislife.com website. You can go purchase those, and we're donating 25% of the proceeds to the World Central Kitchen, which is helping uh, feed those uh, in need during this difficult time. So all you, all you guys got to do is go to shop.ballislife.com and purchase some um, – uh, masks that we're producing out of our warehouse um, out of, I mean, it's, it's really impressive what uh, Gerardo, Kev, uh, Daniel did back there uh, with using um, old uniforms that weren't being used and taking oh, the, from those, yeah, reusing those and creating the masks. So again, shop.ballislife.com, um, 25% of all mask proceeds 
will go to World Central Kitchen. Um, Ryan, I think we, we went on longer than I expected today, but uh, all, all really good stuff. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening in each and every week to the In the Paint show presented by Ball is Life. Um, hope you guys are all staying safe and healthy out there. But until next week, Ronnie and Devin are signing off.